we've been spending some time uh, over these last, well, over 15 weeks, but um, we've been in this grand story of God, which has just been a wild ride in a lot of ways. And we come upon this era of, uh, of the kings. And if you remember last week, uh, if you were with us, is that we spent some time looking at um, what had been a very, very good time with King David and King Solomon that actually went south really quick. And with the end of Solomon's reign and with his son Rehoboam and then Jeroboam is that the kingdom that had been united and God had brought out of the land of Egypt was basically ripped into two because of the nation's apostasy, which simply means that they were turning from the Lord. And they were battling all the things that God had warned them about. Yet they still continued to try to follow God when they felt like it, and then also to try to follow other gods, the gods of Baal and others in the land. And I don't know about you, but a, a well-placed warning sign is a really good thing. You know, if you ever come to somebody's house, and maybe you've never been to their house before, and there's a beware of dog sign, that's a good sign. Or, or you step into the grocery store or a store of some sort, and you see a sign that says, slippery when wet. That's a good sign, because you don't want to make a fool out of yourself when you slip and fall, because you start hightailing it through, and you fall down. Or, you're on a road, a road you haven't been on in a while, and there's this great big orange-white sign, sometimes with flashers, that says, bridge out. That's a good sign. We need signs like that. Now, the interesting thing about signs like that is that because we know a bit about life, is they, they tend to get our attention. We are at a period in the life of the nation of Israel. This is exactly what God is trying to do. He is trying to get their attention. And so what he chooses to do is while at one point the people wanted a king. And he said, okay, I thought I was your king. But I'll give you a human king if that's what you want. And so there was a little bit of success in that. But as we've seen, that failed. And so here we are again, God is saying, I've tried to continue to communicate my truth and my love for you, and the human kings have failed. And so now what I'm going to do is I'm going to create essentially this position or role of prophet. Now the role of prophet in the Old Testament very much communicated the idea that a person was a spokesperson for God, a man and yes, a few women who were prophets. At the time of this era of kings, we had prophets like Ahijah, Elijah, who we'll talk about extensively today, Elisha, Amos, Hosea. And if you read through the Old Testament, and particularly in some of those books where those prophets actually wrote them, is that what you will continue to see is that these men and women were intended to be warning signs to the nation of Israel. They were to witness for God, for truth, for purity, for redemption. But unfortunately, is that there were many that were working against these prophets. In fact, it was a time where evil seemed to reign. Not all that different, perhaps, than what our perception is of the world today. Evil seems to reign in a lot of ways. Chaos seems to, to be more the norm than order. And so I believe as we look today, and we're going to especially look in 1 Kings, starting in verse 
or excuse me, chapter 17 of 1 Kings, we're going to look at the life of Elijah. But I think some of the lessons that we see today, you will be able to look at the other prophets and see as well. What I want us to capture today is the idea that God use, uses and sent, as well as equipped these men and women to not only share his truth, but to reveal God himself. There's a couple terms that were used of prophets in this day and age. One was prophet, which had the idea of a commissioning or a calling. In other words, these were not men and women who just decided to go out on their own and say, hey, you know what, I'll be a prophet for God. No, God spoke to them. And, and while we don't necessarily read or get the backstory behind all of that, they were anointed by God Almighty. But then there was a word seer. And seer was someone who was given supernatural perception and understanding about what was going on. Boy, I wish I had that. <laughs> I wish I had that. Because like the prophets here, there's a lot of things we see and wonder, what in the world is God doing? Or why isn't God doing something? But yeah, these prophets came into circumstances and to places where God wanted them to speak specifically. And then some prophets were referred to simply as men of God or a man of God. And this had to do very much with the relationship. And we talked about this from the very beginning, is God never wants to be a part of our lives just for law and order and truth. He wants relationship to accompany all of that. So I want us to take a look, starting in 1 Kings 17, and talk a moment about Elijah's story. And again, there's many aspects of this story, but we're going to hone in into this encounter on Mount Carmel. If you've never read this, the encounter on Mount, Mount Carmel, and we're going to hit it a little bit today, but I want you to go and read it, because what you will see is you will see some incredible things about not only Elijah the prophet, but the God that he served. Amidst all of this, in sending the prophets, God taught us some things. And the first one is this. God had a knowledge of evil. God is knowledgeable of evil. The prophets acknowledged the presence of evil. That was part of their job and their warning. And so when God sent someone, he sent them because he knew there was evil. And they had a message to, to deliver. If we look in 1 Kings chapter 18, in verses 18 and 19, it's an encounter between Ahab, who was the king of Israel at this time. Now, Ahab, um, Ahab was kind of a schmuck. I don't really know how else to say it. He didn't have much of a backbone. He, he was not a leader, and he kind of just wavered to whatever, and the nations were following very well, I might add. Well, Ahab had a wife, and his wife's name was Jezebel. Now, the interesting thing about Jezebel is if, if you've never really read up on the story of Jezebel, when we hear the name Jezebel, we know that's not good. She was a wicked, wicked, nasty woman. And it's because mostly what she chose to do was follow and honor the gods of the Canaans, the Baals and many others. And it made her a wicked, wicked woman. 
And so this was his wife. And basically, Ahab didn't do anything unless Jezebel approved of it. And uh, Ahab was almost like a little kid to her, and we'll see that in a minute. And so Elijah has this opportunity to be with Ahab. And it's right before the encounter on Mount Carmel. It wasn't the first time they were together. But if you look in verse 17, let me start there. When he saw Elijah, that is Ahab, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Verse 18, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now, what this continues to is this contest on Mount or, or excuse me, on Mount Carmel. But what happens right here is Elijah spoke as a prophet should speak. And that is one knowing of the wickedness and evil of Ahab and Jezebel. And Elijah, as difficult as it was, called him out on it and said, No, I'm not the troubler of Israel. You and your wife and your family are. In fact, your fathers were, he said. And what I find interesting about this is this teaches us about a character attribute of God. Today we're going to look at the omnis, and I don't know if you've ever studied the omnis before, but they are the character, at, the, the, the character and attributes of God that have to do with his all, all ability, so to speak. Omni means all, essentially. And the first one here is God's omniscience. God is omniscient. Now, I know you don't go around saying, hey, did you know God is omniscient? Okay, that, that's not a word we use all the time, but it's one we should know. It's one we should know because it's part of the reason God sent prophets. He wanted them to know, the people to know, that God was all-knowing. God is all-knowing. In other words, he has an infinite knowledge and understandings of things past, present, and future. That's why he's God. For you, he knows everything about your life. He knows everything that has happened, that is happening, and that will happen. Now, for some, that's a little scary Actually, I think for all of us, it's a little scary, isn't it? But God doesn't want to be or desire to be. He doesn't carry this character of being omniscient to hold it over us. No, it's all for the primary goal of drawing himself to us. The presence of the prophets teaches us that God is all-knowing. Look at Hebrews 4.13 on the screen. The writer says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, don't miss the end of that. Because if, if you are a person, and we know people perhaps, is that those who are glad God is all-knowing know they have to give an account and seek to live for him and worship him and praise him and are obedient to him. But I think every one of us, at some point or another, wonder, is my account going to be good? Is, is when, I, when I meet my maker, am I going to be able to stand before him in righteousness? What we have to understand is that God knows all. And there is such beauty in that church. Don't be frightened by that. Those feelings that you feel that you think nobody understands, God knows. Those heartbreaks that you go through and you just while people may have experienced similar circumstances, your comfort, your assurance is that God knows. 
our response to this, especially in a time of chaos and turmoil, is that because God knows, God has a plan. Now, we aren't privy always to all that plan. And in fact, that angers us sometimes, doesn't it? It frustrates us. But the truth is, is that we should be like Elijah, who spoke in his first encounter with, with Ahab back in chapter 17, if you flip back to verse 1. Ahab and Elijah, and Elijah approaches Ahab and he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve. So before any message, before any warning, before anything else, he says, I want you to know a couple things, Ahab. First of all, I'm a servant of God. There's that word again. We keep coming upon it, don't we? Over and over again in the Old Testament, the speaking and, and, and the telling of people who are servants. We should take note. But then there's also this allegiance to God as a servant. But then he says this beautiful thing, the God of Israel lives. In other words, he's acknowledging that God knows what's going on, Ahab, the enemies, the demons in your life, God knows what's going on. And that is the best thing for you. That's the best thing for me. God's omniscience allows us to do what Elijah did and place our trust in him. Because God knows things and sees things and has perception of things and has an understanding of things far beyond ours. If you're in a situation now and you're, you're struggling with finances and, and you wonder, how in the world is this going to work out? God knows how that can work out. We can panic about our circumstances or we can place our trust in the knowledge of God. And I'm glad God knows because He knows that a lot of times I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue what's going on. And I try, but what I'm learning more and more in my life and what I want to continue to lead us in is instead of worrying about how much we know or how much we don't know, is that we learn to follow the one who knows everything. That's what it is. That's who he is. But it leads us to the second point that we see in Elijah's story and the story of the other prophets, is that God has power over evil. He doesn't just know about it, which means he knows how to deal with it. He has power over it. And this one we like, don't we? Because we just want God, we just want to say the word, and God's like, boom, and he strikes them down. That's what we want. We love that part of God. Yeah, God, show them who's going to win, particularly in this competitive culture we live in. It's like, yeah, let's have a contest. So that's exactly what Elijah did. So what he did is in speaking to Ahab in chapter 18, beginning in about verse 16, he begins to challenge the prophets of Baal. And so here's what happens in these verses. Is that he calls the prophets to bring a bull and to sacrifice it. Cut it up, sacrifice this on Mount Carmel, essentially as an altar. And he says, put the wood there and all of that. And then what we're going to do is I'm going to have my own little pile over here. And what we're going to do is that we are going to call upon our gods. And the true God will display his power and his authority. You see, power is authority in God's economy. As God, he has authority and dominion. Now, I can imagine Elijah at this point is pretty stoked. I mean, have you ever entered a contest and you just know you're going to win? Or you know who's on your team is going to win? 
I mean, you're like just waiting for the next person to walk up, and it's like, okay. And if particularly somebody that's kind of arrogant and cocky, and it's like, you want to play? Yes. Oh, I guess. Okay, well, let's play. I don't know that I'm very good. You know, all the while, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, oh, yeah, I got this one. I'm sure that's how Elijah was. But it wasn't for Elijah's glory. It wasn't for his victory. It was for God's victory. And so the, the prophets of Baal, and by the way, there's 450, and there's Elijah. One. Those are not good odds. Nobody goes into odds like that. But Elijah knew of God's power. And so they encounter on Mount Carmel this experience, and the, the prophets are calling upon their God, praying to him. And, and Elijah gets a little, few little jabs in here. He says, well, maybe your gods are asleep. And there's a Hebrew word here that suggests that maybe they're in the bathroom. Maybe they're on vacation. So I don't know that you guys are being loud enough. Now, I'm not sure what God thought of all of this, but God knew what he was going to do. And so they start screaming louder. And this is hours. This is not five minutes. This is hours. To the point that they begin to, to beat themselves to, to where they bleed. Because they feel like they're not having the power or the ability to call upon them. So it's probably their fault. Silence. Nothing. And so then we pick it up. We pick it up around verse 36 of chapter 18. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Now what you have to realize is that Elijah upped the odds even more. He said, I want people to understand completely. And again, he was God's instrument at this point. And so we have an altar, and he says, before I get to it, before I begin to pray, is why don't you take some water and dump it over the wood and, and the sacrifice? So they did. He said, oh, let's do it again. So they did it again. And then for a third time, let's do it one more time. Now, if you have ever been camping and you've tried to start a fire with wet wood, you know what's going on here. It's not easy. I don't care how much Boy Scout training you've had. It's hard when that wood is soaked. The water had poured out so much over this altar that it filled a trench around it with water. And so then Elijah calls upon his God. Verse 36, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Here it is. Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones... Get that? The soil and also licked up the water in the trench. God is all-powerful. It doesn't matter the human odds in your life that you are against. It doesn't matter the natural odds that you are against. It doesn't even matter if you're against yourself. God's power can overcome. It doesn't matter how much you think you've set yourself apart from God and resisted Him. The moment that you say, God, I will follow you, is God's power will demonstrate what has happened in many of our lives, and that is a heart that has been changed. And there is no greater demonstration of God's power except then. Some of you know, and God knows, what He brought you from. 
Some of you are, being, you are in the midst of that, and he's bringing you through. Jeremiah 32 speaks to God's omnipotence. That's the second omni, omnipotence, which means God is all-powerful. And that powerful, that power, that authority should bring us confidence that you are not fighting battles that are just yours. You are fighting battles in allegiance with the Lord that he says, I'll take care of. You just follow me. And so Jeremiah echoes this. Jeremiah, a later prophet, he says in 32, 17, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Read this with me. It's up here. Read this with me. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing. Stop counting God out. Stop thinking he just doesn't have what it takes. God has everything it takes, and he knows what it takes. I'm glad God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. I'm glad God is omnipotent. And I and you and we together should not be afraid to call upon God's power. We have to trust him when he's going to use it and how he's going to use it, but we cannot be afraid to call him, to call on him for it. But here's what we got to get, is we got to understand that we don't call upon it so that we can have peace and comfort and victory. No, it's for his glory. But the beauty is he gives us peace amidst God sent the prophets to, dis, to be a display of his power. And our response to his omnipotence should be that of what Jesus said as he's talking to the disciples and talking to some of the Pharisees in, cha- in Mark chapter 10 when they're speaking of what it takes for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And, and what we know here is that uh, Jesus is talking about if there's any other allegiances, if there's any, any break in, in sure soul allegiance to me, it's hard to have a commitment fully to God. And God is jealous, and that's what he wants, our commitment to him. And so Jesus says, humanly, it's impossible. But he says, all things are possible with God, every part of it. I think one of the roles that the church plays in the life of the people that make the church is that we are to constantly be going to one another and reminding people, not that we understand what they're going through, but they have a God who does. I mean, let's face it. Maybe you've faced a situation where you've lost a spouse or you've been in addiction or you've lost your job, you were fired, and, and somebody comes to you and says, well, I really know how you're feeling, I'm sorry. While that is sincere and it's good, it's different, isn't it? And we shouldn't push those people out of our lives. We shouldn't say, okay, don't speak into my life. But I think we have to be really careful, church, because what we need to do more than anything is instead of trying to identify with them because we've shared that experience, let's point them to God. Let's say, you know what? I don't know how this is going to work, but here's what I'm going to tell you is that God is omnipotent. And they'll look at you funny and say, what does that word mean? You say, God, the God we serve is powerful. He is able to overcome anything. But that's the tough part, isn't it? 
walking through that? How are we there for one another? How do we help people when we can't fix what's going on? The prophets, Elijah was not going to fix what was going on. It was so God's job. It is still God's job. But Elijah had a role to play. And Elijah was to help remind people, and he experienced this very personally, that God always provides amidst evil. God always provides amidst evil. If we go to 1 Kings 19, what we begin to see is the Mount Carmel victory just took place. God demonstrated his power and he struck the altar and it was, it was gone. He had consumed it. For Elijah, this was a good spot. God was everything he said he was. And so he was walking pretty high, a little, a little kick in his step. And then old Ahab, remember him? He goes back and tells wifey that Elijah killed 450 prophets. That's not fair. He pouted to his wife. And so essentially his wife said, Jezebel said, well, then he's going to die. There's no way around it. We're going to kill him. This is where God proved himself very specifically to Elijah. Because Elijah's response comes in verse 3 of chapter 19. He heard that Jezebel was out for him. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Elijah was discouraged. Huge, wonderful, beautiful mountaintop experience spiritually. Guess what? We are prone to the valleys right after the mountaintops. And what happened is, somehow, some way, Elijah lost perspective that God was all-knowing and all-powerful. But he needed a different aspect of God's character to reveal God to him. And that was God's omnipresence. God is omnipresent, which means God, God is able to be in any place, any circumstance, any situation. God is able, able to penetrate and be a part of that. Have you ever been where Elijah's been? God, I'm done. Maybe it was after maybe being a part of a church and, and there was some hurt and you said, okay, I'm done. Maybe it's because a, a close friend somehow abandoned you and you said, okay, I'm done. I'm done, I'm done investing in people because I keep, I keep getting messed up by it. Or you've worshipped and you've honored and you've not done it perfectly but you've sought to follow God and you've seen those mountaintop victories and you've experienced those, those wonderful moments of great spiritual joy and yet evil seems to keep winning. And like Elijah, you run and you say, okay, Lord, I'm done. 
I absolutely believe we all have these experiences at one point or another. And may I be so bold to say, I kind of think we have to. As beautiful as God is in those powerful moments on the mountaintop, when we're in the valley and we feel all alone and we feel abandoned and we feel like nobody understands, the aspect of God's character that we should cling on to is the fact that He is present. Elijah took off and ran and then eventually went further to Mount Oreb. Now, there is no coincidence this was the same mountain that Moses was given the Ten Commandments. Do some study about that. It's pretty cool. But once again, God showed up. And he basically says to Elijah, what are you doing? Why are you running from me? And Elijah says, I've been zealous for you. I have served you. I've been obedient to you. I knew this was a risky thing, but I'm telling you, two steps or one step forward and two steps back, and I am done. God, I don't get it. I'm done. Let me just tell you, it's okay to be there. It is okay to be there, but it's not okay to stay there. It's not okay to stay in that moment because if we stay in that moment, we forget that God is there with us. Proverbs 15:3 on the screen. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Catch the wicked and the good. He always provides. He always protects. But what it sometimes means is what we have to do is we have to go to the mountain and we have to wait. And sometimes, like happened to Elijah, the Lord met him and appeared to him. He came in an earthquake. He came in a thunderstorm. But he never heard God's voice. And then there was that moment in one of the classic texts of this book. He came in a gentle whisper. Church, sometimes we don't slow enough and we don't slow down enough to hear the whisper. But be assured that God will always provide amidst evil. As we worship him, as we follow him, as no matter what it looks like, and we can't see God, God is present. When someone around you, when a fellow brother or sister is suffering, we should go up to them and not tell them you know what it's like. But and maybe you do, but maybe you just say to them, you know what, I know God is not absent here. I know you may not be able to see him, and I don't know that I can see him, but I know God, and God's character is that he is omnipresent, and that means he's not leaving you alone. And sometimes what that means is that God is behind us. And what God is doing is he's nudging us and saying, come on now, let's get going. It's okay, get that head up. I know it's difficult, but I will get you through this. And sometimes he's right here. And sometimes he's got his arm around us and he's saying, okay, step one, let's do it. Okay, let's wait. All right, step two, let's do it. And some of you have been there. I know you have. You've been through horrific circumstances. And then sometimes when you just can't take those steps, God's out there and God is leading the way, especially in those battles when they are so overwhelming and evil seems to be winning. God says, let's go. You follow me and I will lead you all the way through it. What I love about God is that God says, you're never going to feel alone. And if you feel it, it's not a true feeling. And yes, we don't have true feelings sometimes. 
But God says, have confidence in me. God says, has assur- have assurance in me. Now, here's the thing. You're not always going to have comfort. God's omnipresence does not always give us comfort, but he will always give us peace. Because some of the uncomfortable situations are the very situations that he will reveal himself the most. And let's just face it, guys. Um, our comfort is not always the best thing for us. It's great to sit in a chair all day and be comfortable, but it's not good for your health. Sometimes we got to get up and we got to get moving and we got to eat well. God says, I walk through all of it with you. Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit, the psalmist says. Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. I wish, as your pastor, one of the abilities I had was to fix some of the troubles you're in and help that way. But that's not my job. That's not what God's called any of us to do with one another. What he's called us to do is to continue to point people to him and to remind people. A few people after first service said, thanks for the reminder. Yeah, we need it. Because when you're, you're in that valley, everything else seems to be winning. The 450 prophets of Baal seem to be winning. But what it communicates more than anything is God's desire and ultimate purpose of sending the prophets and ultimate purpose in dealing with evil and that is redemption. God's redemption beyond evil. God not only provides amidst evil, God not only has ability and the power to overcome evil, is that God has a redemption plan beyond evil. In other words, evil's not the last word. Evil may have a very strong voice right now. It is not the last word. And that's why he sent the prophets. If you look at 1 Kings 18, 37, right before God struck the altar, Elijah prays, Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. God's ultimate purpose of revealing himself through the prophets or anything else is to draw people to him. We look at prophets sometimes, it's like, yeah, go get them. Yeah, tell them how evil they are. Yeah, all this. That's necessary, but that's not God's ultimate purpose. God's ultimate purpose is to say, I want them to turn their hearts to me. I want Israel to come back to me. I want the people in the land of Canaan to once and for all turn to me. And because of this, Elijah gave a message of hope. That's what prophets were to do. Even in their condemnation, hidden in every one of those is a message of hope. That's why God sent his greatest prophet. Does anybody know who the greatest prophet ever to be sent was? Don't overthink it. Who is the greatest prophet that God has ever sent? Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how is Jesus, except for that's what we always say, how is Jesus the greatest prophet? Because he is our greatest hope. 
And you know why? Because he embodies God's power. He embodies God's knowledge. And he embodies God's presence. So much that he came in human form to be with us. His power was displayed through the prophet Jesus when Jesus went to the cross and defeated death. You see, evil's already done, folks. It's already done. All this playing that evil is doing right now is not the last word. And you say, well, then why does not God just strike it and be done with it? It's because of this point here. Because he wants to see the redemption in every person's heart. Now, I'll tell you, I don't know how God more clearly communicates to the church what our job is, except that. It's not just to go out and talk about how evil, evil it is. It's talk about how our God is greater than the evil. It's to talk about that God's plan is to not just condemn people, but in fact to redeem people. There are stories in every chair here today, whether you realize it or not, how God's mercy and grace has shown into your lives. And I love those stories. And maybe you say, well, I'm walking away or I've walked away. You know what? God's not done with you. I don't care what you've done. And remember, he knows it all. God says, come, come. You see, Jesus is the greatest prophet as spoken in Hebrews 13, excuse me, Hebrews 1, verses 3 and 4. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. I love that phrase. And the exact representation of his being which means his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his omniscience, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels, and I will add the prophets, as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. God is full of grace and mercy. Your lives are testimony to that, church. Your lives are testimony to what he's brought you out of because of what he knew was going on in your life. Your lives are a testimony to God's power because he changed a heart times many. And for I know some of your stories, he just didn't change your heart. He changed the heart of people around you. For some of you, what happened is God drew you and then he drew your family. God is so able to be present in everything. You couldn't run and you can't run. And so our response is to call upon Jesus Christ as the greatest prophet. To call upon him and to confess faith in him. If you don't know this assurance, if you don't know this this peace, this understanding, this hope, this confidence, then I'm telling you, you need to know Jesus. You need to know him. And I want to challenge us with something. If we are going to gather as a church and we're not going to be people who don't know Jesus into this place, then we better get out of this place and go find them and go where they are and point them to his power, his presence, his knowledge, because that's what we're supposed to do. And what I love about the prophets is the prophets always, always reveal God and his great plan of redemption. So church, we have a calling. We're not prophets per se, but there's so much that God is calling us to do and communicating who he is. So share with people. Share with people about what God has done in your life. 
I had a young man come to me last week. He came up to me afterwards, and he shared with me that he was working through an addiction. And he said, what I decided to do is to come to church. And I said, good for you, (laughs) because no recovery will be complete without Jesus Christ. And he very much said, I'm not sure what this looks like, what it's going to be, or whatever. And I don't know whether he's made a commitment to God. But what he's beginning to recognize because of some very loving people in his life who care about him are saying, you need Jesus. We shouldn't apologize for that. No matter how politically uncorrect it is, people need Jesus. We need Jesus. So let's continue to communicate that. Let's continue to be God's messengers. I'm going to invite the band up. And as we do that, I want us to think today, what is God What is God wanting you to rest in in this message? Maybe it's just those reminders of of his omniscience and his uh, omnipotence and and his omnipresence. Maybe it's just that. Maybe you've never heard those before. Rest in that and think back into your life of where he has proved faithful in that. And if you say, I can't see it, keep looking. It's there. But maybe there's someone that you know that needs to hear that message. Well, I would love you to bring them to church. I don't want to be the one to tell them that. I want you to tell them that because they know you. That's the role of the church. Let's carry it out. If you would stand with me as we worship and let's pray. Father, as we we call upon you, as we worship you, may today be a reminder that you are all, period. And that Your power, your knowledge, your presence, and your grace and your mercy is more than sufficient no matter where we're at. Lord, I pray, help us to worship you, not just in this place, but beyond, acknowledging each of those. In Jesus' name, amen.